Welcome to the Autism Classroom Resources Podcast, the podcast for special educators who are looking for personal and professional development. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Reeve. For more than 20 years, I've worn lots of hats in special education, but my real love is helping special educators like you. This podcast will give you tips and ways to implement research-based practices in a practical way in your classroom to make your job easier and more effective. Welcome back. I'm Christine Reeve, and I'm your host of the Autism Classroom Resources Podcast. And today we're continuing our discussion about IEP goals. In our last episode, episode 36, we talked about enabling goals and how they can give more power to your IEPs. And today I want to talk a little bit about IEP mastery criteria. IEP mastery criteria is really the unsung hero or the dastardly villain, depending on how you look at it, in IEP reading writing. We don't think about it nearly as much as we probably should, and there are so many ways that it can either help us or hurt us down the road as we actually try to teach the skills from the IEP. We tend to slap on 80% or 4 out of 5 on the end of the goal and call it done. But the mastery criteria can be one of the biggest areas of disagreement when determination of mastery of the goals comes around, because they're often written in a way that meant different things to different participants. While IEP mastery criteria can seem pretty straightforward, it can really trip up an IEP team in many different ways. If it isn't clear, there may be disagreement among the team about when the skill is or isn't mastered. If the mastery criteria is written vaguely, then you're unlikely to have agreement. And some mastery criteria can seem different depending on who's reading it. An IEP mastery criteria is also critical when you go to create a system of data collection. There's nothing worse than sitting down to analyze your data only to discover that it doesn't match the way the mastery criteria was written. Similarly, the way you teach the goal is often dependent upon the way that the goal is written and the mastery criteria. So I thought I would share a couple of things I've learned over the years that might help when you're determining that mastery criteria. These are nine things to think about when you write that ending on that goal or objective. And in our resource library, our free resource library, you can get an IEP checklist that includes a lot of these different strategies. So I will make sure that that link is in the show notes for you as well. So let's get started. So before I get started, if you were looking for more ideas on how to write effective IEP goals, how to make IEP writing easier, and how to make sure that your goals are meaningful for your students, you might want to check out the Special Educator Academy. We actually have a number of workshops designed specifically around writing IEP goals of all kinds. Uh, We have some live sessions where we've done it together, and I'm planning a study group for the summer months of this year where we're actually going to do some working kind of mini course IEP work to get ready for the new year. So you can check out the Special Educator Academy and get a free trial at specialeducatoracademy.com. The first consideration in IEP mastery criteria is the type of skill that the goal is addressing. 
different skills lend themselves to different kinds of mastery. And even within the subject or the area of the skill, you could have different needs for mastery. So let's look at reading, math, and behavior as examples. For instance, reading lends itself to accuracy of comprehension at different grade levels, but it also needs to focus on fluency of words per minute and accuracy of words read. So depending on the focus of your goal, you could be writing percent accuracy, like percent of comprehension questions answered correctly, or you could be writing mastery as X words per minute in a second grade paragraph. In math, it lends itself to accuracy, like 90% correct in most situations. But sometimes we need to think about fluency. For example, X problems per minute with math facts that are underlying later mastery of skills. Challenging behavior is often measured by frequency of behavior over time. For example, no more than one instance of hitting adults per week. However, if I was measuring crying, I might need to have mastery of duration because crying for 60 minutes one time a day, which would be a frequency of one, is more significant than crying for 10 minutes each time, three times a day with a frequency of three. And if the problem was the severity of the behavior, then we would need different measures like rating scales or something like that. So number two is the importance of the skill. You have to choose how high you set your IEP criteria mastery based on how important it is that the student masters the skill. We need to think about the importance of the skill to later learning as well as to safety and well-being. So if we think about foundational skills, is it a basic skill that's foundational to later skills? For instance, reading, decoding, fluency, and comprehension are all pivotal skills in being able to read for knowledge later. We all know about the shift from learning to read to reading to learn. Because of that, early reading goals that focus on basic reading skills need to have higher levels of mastery. Mastering decoding at 60% is going to be problematic as the student's independent reading becomes a foundation for learning new material. For safety and well-being, the question you want to ask is, is it a skill that involves safety or well-being of the child? Skills that are written for safety or that have safety involved in them are going to require higher levels of mastery. For instance, crossing the street needs to be mastered at 100%. If a student masters it at 80%, he has a 20% chance of being hit by a car. Let's say we're writing a goal for lab safety in chemistry. It's important for the student to demonstrate good use of precautions like wearing safety goggles and keeping hands clear of the Bunsen burner when it's turned on. Those are goals that need to be at least 90%, if not 100% correct for the student's safety. The third thing to consider in mastery criteria is whether or not your criteria is age relevant. You have to set your IEP mastery criteria based on whether it's meaningful for the student's age. For instance, saying that a student will be on task in a group situation 100% of the time is probably not realistic for most ages. We all get distracted at times. Similarly, 
If a typical peer responds to questions with correct answers 70% of the time, it's really not reasonable to expect a child with an IEP to do it at 90% of the time. So pay attention to how often behaviors occur with typical students and then use that as your guide. I think we do better with this probably with academic skills than we do with things like social skills. Sometimes we expect the social behavior of our students to be a little higher than we would really accept from a typical peer. Number four, it's real, we have to think about how we're going to measure the skill. Educators often lock themselves into really complex data systems because of how the IEP goal is written. So think about how you're going to measure the skill before you write the goal or you will regret it. Here's one of the best examples I've found, and it's one that I've done frequently. The problem is you're writing a goal to focus on a student improving initiating communication or social interaction. You write a goal that he will initiate a social interaction with a peer on four out of five opportunities. When you go to collect the data on this, you realize that you don't know what an opportunity to initiate a social interaction that he didn't take looks like, because really you can initiate anytime. You don't need a specific opportunity. And I've written this one a ton of times. The solution is to first figure out the baseline of how many times he currently initiates during specific activities like recess. Let's say it's between one and two times in a 15-minute recess time. Then write the goal. Student will initiate an interaction with a peer at recess three times during a 15-minute period. This way, you only need to count the number of times he initiates and not how many opportunities he has that you can't determine anyway. It streamlines your data, it makes it more easy, but it also makes it meaningful. You also have to think about your conditions of measurement. So you wanna make sure you're writing the goal to fit what you can actually observe. So making sure that you're writing in the conditions of data collection. For instance, sometimes it's not feasible or reliable to take data through the entire day. For instance, counting every verbalization a student makes throughout the day, assuming that it's not just one or two, is going to be difficult in a classroom. But worse, trying to do it may result in unreliable and inaccurate data because there are just too many distractions and you miss ones. So to address that, we might plan to take samples of data. And I have some blog posts that I will link in the show notes or the blog post that goes with this episode. And you'll find that at autismclassroomresources.com slash episode 37. But if you're planning to assess the skill by taking a weekly sample or what we sometimes call a probe sample, You want to make sure that you indicate that in your level of mastery. For instance, if you write that he will do it four out of five days, you're going to have to take data every day. So you might want to write it as he will demonstrate the skill on four out of five opportunities on twice weekly samples collected over a period of three weeks. Then you take a sample twice a week and you use that data. Now, there are some considerations in using sample data, so definitely go back if you're not familiar with it and read through that information, 
or check out my free webinar on creating data collection systems in the classroom. And I will make sure that that link is in the show notes as well. Number five are our instructional steps. And this is probably one that I learned most recently. You want to make sure that you're thinking about your instructional steps, the order in which you're going to teach the skill before you write the goal. For example, I'm teaching one-step directions in a very typical discrete trial format, introducing one direction. When he gets that, I introduce a second direction. When he gets that, I randomize them together. And then I introduce a third direction and I randomize them all when he masters that one. If I write my objectives for this goal to teach 10 one-step directions as student will follow 10 one-step directions with partial physical prompts on eight out of 10 opportunities. Student will follow 10 one-step directions with gestural prompts on eight out of 10 opportunities. And student will follow 10 one-step directions with visual prompts on eight out of 10 opportunities. Then I have to teach it in order to match those goals. So the way I was planning to teach it was to introduce one direction to mastery, then another, and then randomizing them. By the time I need to report progress on objective number one, I may have only introduced two or three directions. So I have to test the student on all the directions that haven't been introduced. So as our prompting gets less intrusive, it's unlikely that he's going to meet those objectives. But if I wrote the goal with objectives like this, the goal is that he will follow 10 one-step directions independently on eight out of 10 opportunities. So the goal is the same. S will follow two one-step directions independently on nine out of 10 opportunities. S will follow five one-step directions independently on nine out of 10 opportunities. And S will follow eight one-step directions independently on nine out of 10 opportunities. I don't run into the issues with it clashing with the ways I'm going to teach the skill. That way I can measure it the way that my instructional program is run and I can make it just a little bit more intensive by making those objectives a little bit higher in a level of mastery. The next tip, number six, is to make sure that you're writing your goals and objectives so that they're practical to measure. For instance, if you have a student working on walking independently, use the criteria as something like John will walk to the bathroom from his workstation independently. This is going to be much easier to implement than John will ambulate for 25 feet independently. Please don't make me measure the distance to see whether or not the skill was just demonstrated. (laughs) Pick practical elements in the environment that you can use to measure and build them into the criteria. Number seven, you want to make sure that you're including a time frame in your mastery criteria. And here's a story as to why. I once was working with a student and he was making really good progress, but when we sat down with the parent for a quarterly meeting, the teacher presented the data on the goals, but she averaged all the data for the nine weeks altogether. So consequently, she was averaging his performance when we started teaching the skill with his performance at the end when he had met the mastery criteria by our program's description, at least in my eyes. Essentially, she was averaging the pre-test before he knew how to do the skill with the post-test after we taught the skill. And the averaging washed out his performance increases because it just brought them all down to the middle. And I explained all this. 
And the teacher understood it and understood where the problem was, but mom insisted that it had to be an average of all the data across the IEP because we hadn't specified in the IEP criteria what that time frame was going to be. So now I write goals and objectives in this manner. Jimmy will follow one-step direction presented in a small group independently on 90% of the trials over a two-week period. The goal tells us that we're going to use the data from a two-week period, and he needs to independently follow the direction on 90% of the opportunities accumulated over that time. I don't need nine weeks of data. I do need to be taking data regularly, though, because that two-week period is just going to keep rolling until he has mastery for that whole time. But it also assures that mastery of the skill wasn't just a one-session, one-time thing, and that he's likely to maintain the skill longer and carry it through. Number eight, we need to make sure that our mastery levels mean something. We need them to be meaningful. Let's assume that you expect a student will not be able to master a skill at 75%. And you've determined that typical students would probably display the skill at about that level. In this situation, then, I would not choose that skill. I would reduce the skill. So change to an easier skill rather than lowering the mastery to 50%. Mastering something at 50% is not really meaningful. It's pretty hit or miss. So instead, add prompts or have them master a subset of steps of the skill rather than lessening the level of mastery. Change the goal instead. Sometimes I will do I will change the level of mastery if a team member is really focused on keeping a goal in the IEP. However, most of the time I would rather make the goal easier and master it more strongly so we can move on to an advanced skill with a solid foundation. And finally, number nine. It's always a good idea to have a discussion with the IEP team about the mastery criteria. It's going to help to have those discussions early on so you don't run into the issue that I did in number seven with that parent. And similarly, you don't always know how interpretable things are until you get feedback from other people. So you want to make sure that all the team members believe that the goal is appropriately challenging, but attainable. I would love to hear your thoughts and questions about writing IEP goals. So if you're an educator, hop over to the Special Educator Connection Facebook group at specialeducatorconnection.com and share or ask to join and make sure to answer the questions when you ask to join so that we have the information that we need to be able to let you in. And again, if you are interested in more ideas about IEP goals, if you'd like direct feedback from me and our community on IEP goals or just a place to for sounding boards, come and join us in the Special Educator Academy at specialeducatoracademy.com where we have training and we have a community that can share ideas and give feedback. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Autism Classroom Resources Podcast. I hope that you'll return next week and I'll be talking some more about IEP goals. Thank you for your time. Stay safe and have a great week. Mm -hmm.